0: Amen. Amen. The church say amen again. I'm grateful to be here. Um, My mind is still on that, oh, for grace to trust him more. You don't have to start it back up because I can't sing, but uh, I'm still getting rocked by that. Um, We'll see where we end up. We'll see. Um, How y'all doing? Good. Good. Amen. We're going to be in the book of Genesis uh, uh, this morning. and we're going to be looking at um, Genesis chapter 37. Um, and then we're also going to be looking at chapters 39 um, through 45. And we'll, we're going to be doing a bit of an overview this morning. But we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 37. Um, if you have your Bibles. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. I believe we have a number of copies of God's Word um, for you. Genesis chapter 37. Um, Somebody raise their hand over here. Um, As you're turning there, I was debating whether or not to address this because it's been on my mind, and George addressed it in his prayer, but I just just concerned about, Genesis 37, so be on your way, just concerned about just the proliferation of violence uh, that we're seeing in the culture today. Um, There was an incident in Kentucky, if you've been paying attention to the news, um, of two individuals who were killed at a Kroger. uh, That's a grocery store. Um, um, That Kroger is the the grocery store of my my in-laws. Sonny's parents go there regularly, um, it's right across the street from, from where she lives. Uh, and then they reported that the, uh, the, 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 gunman tried to go in a church before he got to Kroger. And that church is Sonny's home church. Uh, I preached there several times. Uh, my in-laws are still members there. My father-in-law is the head of the deacons there. And they had just gotten out of a noontime Bible study, uh, before uh, he attempted to get in the door. And so these things just come closer and closer to home. And, um, you know, in moments like these, you hear iterations of, uh, uh, you know, this is not us, right? You probably hear that on the news, this is not America. And, 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 and I understand what is attempted to be said there, right? It's, a, it's an aspirational ideal, right? It's an appeal to the ideals that we aspire to. Uh, but one of the things that we're finding out is that in many ways, America has yet to reckon with the ways in which we have fallen short of those ideals, Right? And so, no, I'm not saying that we need to walk around chanting, you know, this is America. You know, I like that song just as much as anybody else. But uh, it's just a reminder that we have a long way to go. And one of the ironies, the unfortunate ironies of this current cultural moment is that the outside world is evidencing that it is utterly impotent to fix this. And yet we, we still in many ways trying to get our stuff stuck together. Um, And so it's the world is looking for, as George prayed, uh, that remedy, that solution. And it's and it's in here. They should be able to look in here and see what unity and diversity looks like. Uh, uh, And so just um, in referencing back to Pastor T's message last week, uh, if you weren't here, listen to it. But just leaning into uh, what is that great need of us uh, exemplifying what the gospel uh, does in the here and now. Right. There's an already to the already, not yet. And so we want to make sure that we're evidencing uh, that already. But it's just been on my heart and mind. And so uh, just because it came so close to home with Sonny's uh, parents um, there in Kentucky. So just be in prayer and, uh, and lean into that. Genesis chapter 37, if you have it, say amen. amen. If you need a minute, say wait a minute. All right, can we please stand for the reading of the word of God? I appreciate it. Uh, the 37th chapter of Genesis. And I'm just going to read for our hearing the first uh, 11 verses of Genesis chapter 37. And it reads, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zelpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Such is the reading of the word of God. You may be seated. Um, For the time that is ours to share, uh, I want to lift from this passage, this thought, a paradigm of providence, a paradigm of... Providence. I want to read a quote to get us started. The Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us as his own people and will command a blessing upon us in all our ways so that we shall see much more of his wisdom, power, goodness, and truth than formerly we have been acquainted with. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us When ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies, when he shall make us a praise and a glory that men shall say of succeeding plantations, may the Lord make it like that of New England. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill, the eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. That was 1630, so early 17th century. A Puritan minister by the name of John Winthrop uh, allegedly was declaring those words in a sermon on board a ship from England to what would become known as New England. It's the puritanical beginnings of the American colonies. And in this famous speech, he reflects on what are in many ways the Assumptions, or we could even say the presumptions uh, of divine providence, that it was in God's uh, providence, his guidance, his direction, uh, that these Puritans made their way to New England, to what was to them the new world. Now, of course, there were already African peoples and native peoples there, but... This is what the beginnings of this country sounded like for those who were theorizing the project that they were creating. A couple centuries later, a columnist named John O'Sullivan, O'Sullivan rather, and commenting on his desire to see Texas added to the Union, so this was an argument for Texas's annexation, he says this, Manifest destiny, it is our manifest destiny to overspread the continent allotted by providence for the free development of our yearly multiplying millions. This notion of manifest destiny would be the kind of theme or, or the driving force of belief that would cause what was this New England project to spread out and move westward. And in the process, of course, uh, uh, removing and up, 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 uprooting, as it were, uh, uh, native peoples uh, throughout the West. But notice how how the notion, again, of providence is is, is complicated in that narrative. Raise the issue of providence in America. Typically, thoughts like these are what the notion conjures. People think about providence, they think about the beginnings of uh, this democratic experiment and how there were notions of God sanctioning certain things that would eventuate in the founding of this country. Providence doesn't begin in the 17th century, though. It is a notion that has a long contested history. Um, Individuals from from Aristotle to Augustine uh, to to, to other theologians of the past have debated this issue. And it makes sense, right, because, I mean, if if you're thinking about the attributes of God, or if you're thinking about the qualities of the characteristics that you attribute to him, uh, it, it, it would make sense that you would reckon with how this creator, this God, relates to his creation. I would imagine you want a God who uh, has some involvement with his creation. It would, it, it would be a sense of comfort to know that the God who you declare created the world is actually in, in care and in keep of that world. There'd be other theories that would try to reckon with providence, uh, much to its denial. You have uh, individuals who were called deists in the Enlightenment age who said that, "Yeah, yeah, there was a creator God, but after he created the world, he really didn't have any care or concern for the world, so he just let it roll on like a ball that he pushed. Early in the 20th century, there were individuals who came up with a theology called open theism. They said, you know what, yeah, God perhaps may have created the world, but it is God who is actually passive and waiting on the actions of his creation in order to figure out what he's going to do. I don't like that God. That's just, that's whack. If God is waiting on me to get some stuff right before he acts, oh, it's, 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 it's over it's a wrap before we even start but providence speaks to something much much deeper than this something much more powerful than this like most doctrines providence doesn't show up in scripture clearly stated and defined it is something that is revealed throughout the course of scripture One theologian said that that scripture in its totality is itself a book about providence. That from Genesis 1 1, in the beginning, God, you're getting the hints or the gestures of a divine providence at work. Let me give you the definition of divine providence according to uh, our confession of faith that we uh, sit under, Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. It says, God, the good creator of all things, is divine providence. In his infinite power and wisdom doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. To the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. My, 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 my. That's just a long way of saying God is doing whatever he wants to do when he wants to do. It. I mean, that's, that's what that's saying. But it's saying that the Christian ought not fret about that, right? We, we, we get concerned with people uh, uh, living according to their own prerogatives. But it's saying, no, God is doing what he wants to do when he wants to do it. But it's in accordance with his divine attributes. Then they just all good. Providence lets us, lets us know that it is God who is orchestrating and directing the affairs of human history. Our particular passage that I want to draw our attention to uh, is what I'm calling a paradigm of providence. It gives us a glimpse into this divine prerogative at work. And I want us to walk through it and see what, what God would have us to learn in relationship to that prerogative what is what is the calling that this prerogative mandates upon our lives where else to go but genesis now i'm not going to walk us all the way up from genesis 1 and 37 even though i do like to do that but we can we can start in chapter 12. Uh, let me look my, my wife is like don't you do it um but what's important to know in the way of a prerequisite to, to the story we're getting to here, that, that God indeed has created the world and he's created it in goodness and perfection and that gets all jacked up real quick by Genesis chapter 3, right? So the fall, and, 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 and thankfully God is a proactive God so that God is not caught off guard by the fall. That's good news, by the way. So he is actually already instituting and orchestrating a plan to redeem fallen humanity, which is a part of his fallen creation for his glory. He's already started that work but that fallenness that sinfulness that that proclivity to disobey and distrust and dishonor it it it, it manifests itself over and over and over again until god says you know what i'm gonna flood the earth and i'm gonna start all the way over with noah and his descendants so you have the flood and then you have noah and his descendants getting off the boat and in genesis chapter 11 you see the tower of babel right Tarot of Babel is where God confounds the languages and everybody is sent to their different regions. I would suggest this is where we get the start of ethno-linguistic cultures, right? When God confounds the language, people get sent to different regions. And in those ethno-linguistic cultures, you have what is the production of different qualities and characteristics and phenotypes. What sinful humanity would do with that later on is construct something called race. But in Genesis chapter 11, uh, we see the Tower of Babel. And in Genesis chapter 12, God then gives more clarity with what he's going to do by picking a man named Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, he tells Abraham that I'm going to bless you, make you a blessing. I'm going to give you land and seed. So he, he, he institutes this covenantal language. And in Genesis chapter 15, he ratifies this covenant by basically assuring Abraham that he's gonna do what he said he's gonna do. That's what the Old Testament's all about, God making promises and being like, don't trip, I'm gonna do it. That he's gonna do what he's gonna do. And what's interesting about Genesis 15, which I think is important for our interest in the latter balance of the book of Genesis, is that God tells Abraham while he sleep, I'm gonna do what I said I'm gonna do. You can imagine Abraham is like smiling in his sleep. Like, hmm, yes, God. But he says, but first, your people going to go into captivity for 400 years. You can imagine him being like, hmm, I don't think I like that, God. He says, they're going to they're gonna go into a land and be held captive for, for 400 years. But I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of those sons is Joseph. And beginning here in chapter 37 is the story of Joseph. Now, somebody said, Amen. That was good. I wanted to start at chapter one, but we. <laughs> now, Joseph, we're go- he, he's, he's chosen by his father. His father obviously prioritizes Joseph in some way. There's a lot that we can talk about there about familial favoritism and how to be a good dad and all those things are great. We're going to table that, but Joseph, chosen by his father, has these dreams, relays these dreams to his brothers and his father, and they don't think too highly of it. So let's pick it up in chapter 37, verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture Their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are you not Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pastoring the flock? And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, them being his brothers, saw Joseph from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben, one of the brothers, heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Reuben said this so that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, snatched the jacket. That's what that means. The robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. That means he hit that ground hard. Right. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hands be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Reuben returned to the pit, saw that Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes, returned to his brother and said, The boy is gone, and and where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. He identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garment, This Jacob is Israel, tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his son and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. He said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him, that is Joseph, in Egypt to Potiphar. An officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, check this out. The first thing I want us to think about is it relates to our responsibility to the providence of God. This is what the providence of God calls us to do according to what we're reading here. Number one, part with our preconditions. Part with our preconditions. What's a precondition? A precondition is a condition you have. Uh, Before you agree to do something else, it's a condition that must be met before you agree to sign on to whatever it is that someone is asking you to sign on to. Notice the narrative suggests the way it reads that of all the things Joseph might have had in mind concerning the fulfillment of his dream. Being thrown in a pit and sold into slavery was not on the radar. Can we agree with that? You agree with that? He probably wasn't thinking that this was how it was going to go down. Notice that Joseph, uh, in thinking about what the fulfillment of this dream might look like, he apparently didn't even think that, that getting up and going with his brothers to pasture the flock was a part of his responsibility anymore. Did You notice at the beginning of chapter 37, it says that Joseph is with his brothers pastoring the flock. But in the second section that I read, Joseph's like, he must have slept in. Because his father's like, hey, aren't your brothers already out? And he's like, yeah, they went out. They went out early. He's got his robe on. And his father's like, yo, go go out there and, and and go be go with them. Tell me how they're doing. So Joseph probably walks out with his robe. And his brothers conspire against him. And, and, and you see how his, his situation very quickly transitions to something else. Joseph finds himself in a place where his experience does not meet or match his expectation. That's where you and I often find ourselves in. You ain't got to say nothing. I would like for you to talk back to me, but you ain't got to say nothing. Oftentimes, our experience does not match our expectation. This is one of the fundamental things that causes us anxiety. We don't want to come in here a minute. We want to be, we, you know, there are deeper things that cause me anxiety. No, no, no. What causes you anxiety is that things didn't go the way you thought they were going to go. And you got to come back in here and be reset. <laughs> it's true. I would argue that one of the, the issues of American Christians are particular. Is that we got a lot of expectations that attend, that are an addendum to what this faith walk is all about. As American Christians, we have a lot of that. Now, now, I'll make a footnote and say that Christians of color in America probably have a, that's probably tempered just a little bit. We don't expect everything to be all the way good, you know, just because some things in history. You know, when I was growing up, my parents, very early age, told me and my brothers, yeah, it's gonna be rough. Oh, and that's with God. Without God, you're not going to make it. <laughs> Very early on. So I'm like three or four like, okay. But even in that, American Christians have a lot of expectations. I was serving in ministry in Kentucky once uh, at a, at a Pretty large church, and we used to often uh, bring in when we were doing like concerts or somebody was recording an album, we'd uh, bring in uh, different artists to, to come and, and just do worship for us. And uh, one artist whose name I'm not gonna say because that's uh, y- y'all are not going to listen to him anymore, but who, uh, whose name I'm not gonna say, uh, uh, we were negotiating uh, with him about coming to the church, and we were all really excited. We we're like, oh man, we're gonna get so and so, he's gonna come, he's just gonna kill it, he's gonna do all his latest and, and, and early hits. And uh, he sent over this contract. I was like, cool, okay, he's pretty big. That makes sense. So imagine you have a contract. Uh, uh, Attached to the contract, he had something called a rider. I didn't know what that was. I had to ask my bride, who was in law school at the time, baby, what's a rider? A rider is an addendum to a contract. It says, we can't even get to the contract unless you agree to do all this other stuff. And on that rider, it had, like, you know, catered dinners, 12-passenger van, two. He likes M&Ms. I'm not joking. This is what it says. If he's flying, he likes the aisle seat. I mean, it had all these things. And so I'm heated, right, because I'm like, you know, if I don't get to be that proud, nobody gets to be that proud, right? Like, that's how I'm often thinking about it. If I don't get to do that, you don't get to do that. And so we're debating, okay, are we going to, like, are we going to do this, this, and that? And a senior pastor asked me, you know, Stephen, what you think? And I'm like, absolutely not. We're not going to have him here. <laughs> but check this out, right? As ridiculous as that writer sounds, we all have riders, When God is graciously calling us into the fold and we're thinking about all the greatness of what it means to be a child of God. Somewhere in our mind, we're like, "Okay, I'm going to do this walk with you. But you know what? I really don't like to deal with sickness. Or I really don't like to be without a job for too long. Right? I like to be in between jobs and I want it to be true. No, I'm not unemployed. I'm in between jobs. I'm on my way to my next job. We have we have these we have these what I'm calling preconditions. What I, what I want to suggest that we get from the life of Joseph is that if you're going to have a right reckoning with God and his providence, you have to part ways with your preconditions. If Joseph had any conception about what this thing was going to look like, he had to part ways with that quick. Because Joseph has been thrown into a pit. He's been sold into slavery. He's in Potiphar's house difference between my experience and my expectations. And I don't want to just draw on anecdotal uh, evidence, but we can point to different people in the scriptures, right? It, it is the difference between that experience and the expectation that has Elijah in, in, in 1 Kings hiding in the cave, running from uh, his enemies. Having just called down fire, he's now scared because what he has expected to be the case with his prophetic ministry has not been his experience as of late. Oh, a more, a, more, a more popular example would be our boy John the Baptist. John the Baptist in John chapter 1 sees Jesus coming from afar off. He's like, behold. That's that boy. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There he is right there. Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist is in prison and he's hearing about all these things that Jesus is doing. Right? He started at the, pole; oh, he's in prison now. Experience does not match expectation. And what John the Baptist says, the forerunner of Jesus, he says, he sends his two servants out. Y'all go out there and ask that man, not, it's no longer behold no more. Y'all go out there and ask that man if he's the one Or shall we look for another? Oh my gosh. Is he the one? Or should I be looking for somebody else? Experience does not match his expectations. And what you and I have to reconcile is in what ways... Is that true of our lives? I love worship music. I love it. I'm always joking with Amos about, you know, Amos, go ahead and give us a little something, something extra. I often do a lot of thinking when we're singing. And so there was this one song back in 2009 called I Give Myself Away. And it would just send everybody in Meanwhile, I would be like, I know I'm not there in so many different places. And so I'd just be like swaying from side to side, like just praying and confessing in that moment because I aspire to that ethic. Meanwhile, people next to me, I give myself away. And they looking at me like, oh, you ain't gonna give yourself away? And I'm looking at them like, like you done gave yourself away. We aspire to that. I aspire to that. You aspire to that. But the God of the Bible is one who is sovereign, and he is the one who is orchestrating and directing, and any idea that I have in my head about what my life of faith looks like, I have to let it go. So Joseph finds himself in Potiphar's house. Chapter 39. I'll say something about 38 in a second. Notice the way chapter 39 opens. It says Now Joseph has been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him second time and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and all over that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge and because of him, he had no concern, that as Potiphar, about anything but the food he ate. Joseph has been thrown in a pit, sold into slavery. He's in Egypt. He works for a man named Potiphar. And the Bible says at the opening of this section that the Lord is with Joseph. Stop the presses, because here's what we have to reckon with, and here's what we have to fight against. This isn't a, you know, God, oh, Jojo, I'm so sorry that this happened to you, Jojo, but I'm going to be here with you, Jojo. This isn't that. The Bible is, I think, gesturing towards something more complicated. God is with Joseph not in the sense of, I can't believe that happened, but don't worry, we're going to figure something out. God is with Joseph, as in, I'm the one who has you here. Those are two different things. Because one is a vision of God that, that, that sure, we will be comforted by God saying, I'm with you, that was jacked up, I can't believe what your brothers did, I'm thinking about it. I got something up my sleeve, I think. The other is, God is like, no, 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 no. I'm doing this. How do you feel about that? Like How, how do I feel about that? Let, let, let's, let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, in case you didn't know. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put me over everything and everything's in my charge. He is not greater in the house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me uh, uh, except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, none of the men in the house was there in the house. She called him by the garment and said, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and flew and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, He has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until... Her master came on, that is Potiphar, and she told him the same, same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh, to laugh at me, but as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. So, check this out. Let me wipe myself with this really big uh, thing that I got here. Uh, this transpires. Joseph has been promoted. He recognizes what's at stake. This event transpires. And look at verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. We got got to do something with that. Because I think what, what the narrative is, is, is forcing you to reckon with is that Joseph's life, from an external analysis, is going down, down, down. And the narrative is forcing you to reckon with a constance in that downward trajectory. And the constance is this God is with Joseph. Not only do we have to part with our preconditions, number two. We have to value God's preferred or God's presence, rather, over our preferred plan. Fine Providence challenges us to to value God's presence over our preferred plan. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the man's mind, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. A couple weeks ago, Tim Keller dropped this fire on Twitter. He said, if you say, quote, I believe in God, I trusted in God and he didn't come through. You only trusted God to meet your agenda. I'm gonna say that one more time. If you've ever said, I believed in God, I trusted God, and He didn't come through, you may have only been trusting God to meet your agenda. Sonny and I um, are often reflecting over the, the path that we've walked. And, uh, and one of the things, one of the questions that we always come back to, is, uh, is what work the kindness of God is doing to our understanding of God. What I mean by that? Sonny and I, um, and this is just a general analysis, things tend to work out in God's kindness. We apply for something we worry, we get an upset stomach, but we still get it, right? Think things that we're expecting and hoping and wishing for, they, we, we've had seasons where things just work out. And praise God, if, when you have those seasons, they feel real good. You just be walking down the street like, God, you're so good, right? You do that. But our question is, right, like, because of our tendencies, not because if there's something wrong with God's kindness, What does that kindness do for us and how we see God? Because here's our fear. It is actually creating in us a conception that God is only good when stuff works out. This is what you have to fight against when you're in seasons where God's kindness is just all around. What he's not trying to produce in you is a fallacious understanding of who he is, he actually wants you to trust him more so that when things start going bad, you're still good. What we tend to do, let I me mean, just speak for me, what tends to happen with me is after all that credit that he's built up, the second something go wrong, I'm like, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing. How you doing? And I'm there, I'm there often more quickly than I would like to admit. And God's like, man, wow. Like, wow. Like, wow. I just, I've just, I've, I've proven to you that I got you. I, I, I had you when you didn't deserve to be had. You know that shouldn't have worked out, but I had you. And then, when things turn on you and they don't go according to your plans, there's a frustration, right? It's, it's interesting how the kindness of God can engender in us a false view of God, even though His purpose is for that kindness, is to foster in you trust. Not only do you notice the faithfulness of God in this section, you notice, obviously, the faithfulness of Joseph. Things are not going, I imagine, the way Joseph. Anticipated them to go. Joseph did not use that as an excuse to be bitter, to be inactive, to be unproductive. Joseph is still serving. Joseph still has his conceptions of the righteous requirements of God. What's interesting about that passage is uh, the chapter before it tells the story of one of Joseph's other brothers also engaging with sexual temptation, and falling in Genesis 38. But Joseph here, as his life does not look like what I imagine he expected his life to look like, Joseph is still submitting himself to the righteous requirements of God. Here's why that's important. It's typically when you and I feel like we have a, a just grievance, that obedience just kind of falls away. It's like, well, things ain't even going right, so I might as well. You see how that that creeps in there? Or if it's not some proclivity to do something in kind of an active sense, you just kind of become apathetic. Things not going the way I thought they should go. I'm not gonna serve. You may see me at church, you may not. I'm there in spirit. I'm there with you. (laughs) Listen, 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 y'all. And I'm I'm preaching to myself. Y'all can take what's good or bad. But listen here. Obedience is not the reward we give God for conforming his will to our plans. It's like, God, you've been really good. You know what? I'm going to be good this week, too. It's like, is that what we're doing now? Obedience is not the reward we give God for conforming his will to our plans. In fact, I think that this chapter, this segment of Joseph's life is trying to teach us not merely that we ought value God's presence over our preferred plans, but that God's presence is the preferred plan. It's ultimately about being with Him. You hear this uh, thought reflected in the New Testament, uh, where Jesus' disciples—they're trying to get it. They think they got it. They're trying to be faithful, and uh, and Jesus uh, uh, makes this statement. He's like, "Okay, okay. So y'all following me? Uh, uh, you know, you know where we are going? You know the way. All right, let's go." And they're like, "Hold up! How do we know the way? You have what? what we don't know the way." Jesus is like, "I am the way." God's presence, being with God, being in relationship with God. That's the plan. If you were listening to that Romans 8 passage that was read there, that, the, 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 that he has uh, uh, thought about you beforehand, as it were, that he has foreordained your salvation and, and the, all the implications that flow from that, that's about getting you conformed to the image of Christ so that you can be with God. And what's interesting is that we typically stop at Romans 8 28 that God causes all things to work together for my good, that's simply wrapped up in his greater plan. You ever noticed that? He's causing and orchestrating all these things that you experience in life to work together for your good, but it's not for the good of those things alone. That's just a part of his greater plan to conform you to the image of his son. Joseph is we're running on time. Joseph is 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 now in prison and uh, Joseph is in prison. And he's he's in between uh, two other uh, felons, as it were, uh, a cupbearer bearer uh, and a baker. And he's there in prison uh, with them. And uh, to, to speed this along, the cupbearer and the baker uh, been having these dreams. Uh, and they don't know how to interpret them. And so Joseph uh, interprets their dreams for them. He tells one of them, okay, here's what your dreams mean. In three days, uh, you're going to be let out of prison, and you're going to be restored to your place in Potiphar's house. And to the other guy, he says, okay, here's what your dream means. In three days, you're going to die. And uh, both of those were true. Uh, 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 but Joseph tells them, like, okay, so when you get out of here, remember me, because I'm, you know, down here in prison. I ain't really do nothing. So remember me. Uh, when you go, and what do they do? They don't remember him. Now, 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 here, now here again, here, what are we drawing from this? You ever, you ever been waiting on something to happen, and it don't happen? I mean like waiting patiently, and it doesn't happen. Joseph was 17 when he had that dream that he told his brothers. He was 17. So we're going to see there's going to be two decades that are going to pass by before things start to turn up. Two decades. I would say that the modern American Christian mind, we ain't got two decades for you. We got two two days. It's like, oh, so it's going to be a while. So you mean like Thursday? That's as far as we go. Two decades pass. So they forget about Joseph until one day uh, uh, the, the, the cupbearer uh, remembers uh, uh, that, that there's this man named Joseph in prison because Potiphar has had some dreams, and nobody has been able to interpret these dreams. And Potiphar has dreams, and the cupbearer says, oh, you know what? There was this man in prison a couple years ago. Uh, he's still there probably. Uh, he helped me out. Can you imagine the way Joseph looked at him when he walked out? What's up? And he like smiling like I told you I was gonna have you, boy. It took a couple years. <laughs> Joseph interprets Potiphar's dreams, and the interpretation of Potiphar's dreams is that look, there's gonna be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph is like, okay, over that seven years of plenty, we need to be storing up grain so that when the famine comes, we have food. And so Potiphar is like, oh, man, I think that's great. That's right. And he puts Joseph. I'm in chapter 41 now. In chapter 41. Verse 41. Let's pick it up there. Pharaoh said to Joseph. See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. I guess they like that even then. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, that is Joseph, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. No one is lifting up hand or foot. Ain't nobody doing jack unless Joseph signs off on it. Twenty years have passed. And now we begin to see how God is working this thing, right? No way we would have thought that if we were just approaching the narrative the way Joseph approached it in his own experience. Which is to suggest, if it has ever frustrated you that you can't figure out what it's going to look like, you're not alone. The truth of the matter is, you won't be able to figure it out. Because see, we like to think, I've said this before, God, if you just tell me what it is that you're doing, I could cooperate with that. You know, you don't have to do all this by yourself. <laughs> I got connections. <laughs> right. I'm just I'm, Who said that before in their hearts? If you just told me, like, I'm sure we could work this thing out. It don't work like that, does it? The Bible speaks of his ways being higher and his thoughts being higher. We typically interpret that to mean like right here. don't, we can't imagine what that really means. The Bible has given us language to understand that we're out of our league. We don't know how much further out of our league. And what he gives us in his revealed word is glimpses of what he's doing. Turn with me. Chapter 45. Joseph has now been raised to power in Egypt the text will use this language over and over again I think in many ways it's hyperbolic but it's useful that Egypt is the only place in the whole world who who now has food during the famine people are coming from everywhere to buy food from Egypt because Joseph understood that the famine was on the way and Egypt is the only place that stored up food guess who has to come and get some food His brothers and Joseph would do some things with his brothers over the next couple chapters but I would suggest that it's really this that Joseph is doing he is assessing whether or not they have truly repented for what they have done and he's assessing that not by asking them directly but by seeing how they respond to different things that he makes transpire they come with money one time to buy the grain Joseph knows it's his brothers. They don't know it's him. So he gives them the grain, but he leaves the money in their, in their satchels, and they go, and on the way back, they're like, oh, snap, we still got the money. They're going to think we jacked them. And what he's doing there is he's trying to see what kind of heart is still in operation with his brothers. And, and true, they, 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 they are concerned. They come back, and they're like, Joseph, look, we, we came to make an exchange. Somehow the money still was in our pocket. Can you imagine them trying to say that? Somehow the money didn't leave our pocket, but we came intending to pay you, but we didn't pay you. Uh, He sees that there is this genuine desire to do what's right. They don't bring Benjamin with them the first time, and Joseph really wants to see Benjamin, the youngest of of the sons. And and he says, bring Benjamin here. I'm going to keep Reuben until you bring Benjamin. They bring Benjamin, uh, and Joseph again conspires this little event that makes it seem like Benjamin has committed a crime... And he sees how his brothers are going to react to Benjamin, and, and, and true to fashion, they are concerned about Benjamin's well-being. They just don't want to leave Benjamin and say, okay, Benjamin, you shouldn't have did that, but we going to go and be cool. They say, Joseph, please don't make us leave without Benjamin. We cannot go home back to our father unless everybody's with us. Joseph's like, okay, y'all done changed. Y'all unchanged." Chapter 45. Ben Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by. He cried, make everyone get out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Remember, this is 20 years ago. And now, look what he says in verse verse, verse 5. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Stop right there. Joseph is like, don't trip. Why did he say that? Because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So look at verse eight. It was not you who sent me here, but God. We we, got to do work. We got to do work. Because look, check this out. Joseph is not saying, you sold me, you did all that stuff, but thankfully, God was able to whip it all into something at the end and make it useful. That's not what Joseph is saying. That's not what he's saying. Joseph is not suggesting that God is a God who reacts to things that have transpired, and because he's so awesome, he's able to make it useful. He takes the ingredients of the mess after the mess is made, and he's able to whip it into a masterpiece. And that what we say, He made my mess, my masterpiece. And that's what we say, That's not what Joseph says. Joseph is saying something more, hmm. Joseph is saying that while they were whipping the mess, God was also doing some whipping. Joseph is saying that God is operating on the macro level while folks are doing stuff at the micro level. But his operation on the macro level is so sovereign that he's actually manipulating what's going on at the micro level. I'm going to say that one more again so you can get it. Joseph is suggesting that God operates at the macro level. God has desires and plans and he's orchestrating. But that orchestration is so powerful, it's so sovereign, that it's actually controlling things at the micro level. So while the brothers think that they are selling Joseph, God is sending Joseph in the selling. Oh, y'all. Oh, y'all, because if your life has ever taken some weird turns, it's one thing to suggest and hope and believe that God is going to have you at the end of those crazy turns. It's another thing to say God is the one steering this thing. That's a whole nother conception of God. And I would submit to you that that is the picture of God that the Bible presents. So what does what that meant to produce in us? I would suggest that it's not, he doesn't give us this glimpse so that then we could try to figure out how to, how to trace God and how to track God. Okay, now I know how God operates. He likes to operate a mess, it seems, so he will shake my life up in order to, no, 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 no. It's not, God's not trying to, to tell you here's how to track me. He's saying here's how to trust me. Here's how to trust me that I'm giving you a glimpse into how my providence works, not so that you can make it your business to figure out what I'm doing. That's what we often do. God says, no, I'm giving you a glimpse into my providence so that you can trust me. Uh, there is much that is often made about the... The parallels between joseph's life and jesus's life and depending on what day you ask me i may agree with those parallels uh, which is to say uh the the bible uh presents or, or reveals uh things in the old testament that 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 we like to call types and shadows so a shadow happens when light hits an object at an angle it casts a shadow And and the suggestion is that when the light that is Jesus in the New Testament hits and becomes a reality on the object that is his person and work, it casts shadows in the Old Testament, things that typify or things that that look like what we know Jesus to actually be and do. You don't get to see these shadows. You don't understand them until the light hits the object. Right. Can't point to a shadow unless there's a real object. Light hits Jesus in the New Testament, casts shadows in the Old Testament. We see Jesus in different places in the Old Testament. Tracking with me? Some people would suggest that Joseph is a type or a shadow of Christ. Now, the Bible doesn't declare that Joseph is such, which is why I'm hesitant, but there are some pretty nice similarities here. Let me share just a few. Joseph, beloved of his father, sent by his father to go and see about his brothers, only to be despised and hated and rejected by his brothers, sold for silver, through his suffering trial, Joseph becomes the savior of not only his brothers, but of the whole world in that immediate sense with the famine. Now, I might like that, but if Joseph is Jesus in this narrative, then who are we? You're like, oh, I'm Joseph. You're like, no, not really. (laughs) Like, no, no, I'm Joseph, right? Like, this this is about my life and I'm Joseph. No, no, no. We're doing something different right now. If Joseph is a type of, of, of Jesus, who are you and I? We're the brothers. We're the brothers. We're the ones who rejected him. We're the ones who despised him with our unbelief and our lives. Just like the people who Peter is talking to in Acts 2. Acts 2, Peter says something that is phenomenal. He says, look, this Jesus was delivered over according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. That Jesus, you crucified him. What is he saying there? He's saying that this thing that Jesus underwent, Son of God, taking on human flesh, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for his people, raised on the third day, that all of that was preordained by the Father. You carried it out, though. And that's, ooh. We might talk about that next week, but oh my goodness. He's saying that this thing went according to plan, but you fulfilled it in your unbelief. And you can see as Peter is giving this Pentecost sermon that the people are like looking at their hands like, oh, my goodness. And they're realizing that they crucified their Messiah. Now, if you and I are the brothers. This should be bad news for us. It should be bad news. Because if we rejected him and if we despised him, and if we didn't fulfill what he has revealed to be his righteous requirements, which is all of us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's you and I. That should be bad news. But notice now, remember what I said about Joseph creating these events to see if his brother's evidenced a certain quality? Joseph created those conditions to see not if his brother's could pay for what they came to get. Remember, he, met, he let them leave with their money. Suggesting that what you're coming to get from me, I don't want you to buy it. I'm not looking for you to pay it yourself. I'm looking for repentance. It should be bad news because you and I could never pay for what we did. You do believe that, right? I mean, we're about to end here. We, we, you can be in church so long that you begin thinking, like, I think I could have paid it. No, 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 no. Like, that, that's, a re- that's a thing, right? You begin sitting up in here and thinking that, like, the songs are talking about everybody else. Like, I think I had the money. No, 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 no. We, we were bankrupt, could not pay the debt. And what does he require? He does not require us to pay it because no, he can't pay it. Look, if you're going to reach into your pocket, I know ain't nothing there. He's looking for repentance and faith. So Joseph makes his brothers citizens of Egypt, not on the basis of what they can provide, but just because I'm restoring you, I'm forgiving you. You and I become citizens of a kingdom of heaven, not on the basis of what we can do but on the basis of what he's already done. So with this providence, as, as, as we close up, I, I, I want just, to just suggest the, 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 the thought that, that God is orchestrating all of the affairs of human history, including the affairs of my life, that's true for everybody, whether you're a believer or not. So if you say, Steve, so if you're in here, you're not a believer, you say, oh, see, okay, Stephen, if he's doing it for both of us, if he's doing it for everybody, then what's the point? Well, here's the point. If he's orchestrating human affairs and he's orchestrating human history and he's orchestrating these events in life leading to an ultimate conclusion, then it would behoove us to make sure that we're on the right side of that orchestration. If all of this is headed somewhere and God is providentially guiding and directing all of it, then it will behoove us that we attend to the things that he's called us to attend to, namely believing in Jesus. So if you're in here today and you hear in this message and this concept of God being one who has created the world and who is orchestrating all of these events and even the events of my life, I would suggest to you that he has brought you here for a particular purpose. That you are not here by accident, that actually he is here. Is, Taylor made the condition so that you could come here and hear about your need for a savior and that provision of that savior in Jesus so that you might by God's grace repent and believe in Jesus Amen. the thought that God would orchestrate the affairs of life the way that we see in Joseph's life is sobering because I like my life to have meaning. You want your life to have meaning. And we often like the thought of being a part of something bigger. But what we have in mind when we're thinking that are very particular things, right? It's like, I want to be a part of something bigger. But in the process, like, I would like to blow up too. <laughs> but but consider that that... The, the, the privilege it would be to play a role in what he is doing in reconciling the universe into himself, I have to, I have to get my heart to a place by God's grace where I'm comfortable with that. Because I, I, I have a lot of ambitions. I have a lot of desires. I want my life to look and go a certain way. How, how tightly are you, am I holding on to that? And if I'm going to stand up here and sing songs like I give myself away, but I'm be like, but not that. Then then, then in that moment, God is calling me to reckon with the profession that I'm making before him. But here's what he promises you, though. Here's what he promises me. I promise that what I have in store is worth it. I promise it's worth it. I promise it's worth it. I'm I'm fixing it up better than you could ever fix it up. And you like, I want to believe that, but I got some pretty great ideas. And he's saying, I, I I I I got this thing. Question I'm asking you is, do you trust me? Do I trust him? Are we gonna trust him to the end? Let's pray. Father, we 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 see a glimpse of your divine design here in in, in Genesis and and I confess, Lord, that we, I'm, I'm in awe. I'm reminded of the fact that, um, that you are sovereign and that you are indeed orchestrating the affairs of human history, including the affairs of my life. And, and, and God, we confess that the task of relinquishing power and authority over our own selves even though we know we can't keep ourselves, is a difficult task. So, Father, I pray that um, as we read the narrative of a piece of the history that you have orchestrated, Father, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you were producing us, not anxiety, not an attempt to figure you out, but that you were producing us a trust, a faith, that the work that you've begun in us You will perform it and complete it until the day that your son returns. Father, I pray that you would do this for not just the ones who've already professed and the ones who believe in here, but those even in here who have not yet done that. I pray that you would awaken them spiritually, that you you would give them, grant them new life, that they might see the devastation of their sin and their need for the Savior and that they might cling to Jesus in this moment. Father, let them know that their life is headed somewhere, that you are sovereignly orchestrating and bringing human history to a particular end. And Father, I pray that you would impress upon them right now the desperate need to make sure that they are reconciled to you by your son so that they can receive that down payment of the spirit so that they can be assured that wherever you're taking human history, they're going to be with you in that process. And that relationship is going to be a favorable one and not one that's characterized by enmity. Father, I pray that you would do this in them and for them, for their good, for our good, and for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.